Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today, we are fortunate to have Jennifer Goldman Wetzler. She is the founding principal of the Alignment Strategies Group. It's a New York-based consulting firm, and she advises CEOs and their executive teams on how to optimize organizational health and growth. She's written most recently the book Optimal Outcomes, Free Yourself from Conflict at Work, at home and in life. It, it's really an excellent book, and there's a lot of books on negotiation and conflict and communication, and this one really deserves its place uh, on the shelf and, and in your brain because it's, uh, it adds uh, Im- important things to the conversation, which we're going to go over now in the next few minutes. So, Jen, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much, Peter. It's really great to be here with you today. So, you know, I mentioned in the intro that there are a lot of books out there on conflict and communication and negotiation. And what are you hoping this one is adding to that conversation? This book is all about what to do when you've tried all the methods that you found in other books and they have not worked for you. They have failed. This book is for situations that have returned again and again and again, no matter how many times you've tried to resolve it using other methods. I love that because most people don't want to take on that challenge. Most people, when they're writing a book, they want to say like, okay, so you've had this conflict. How am I going to arrange it? And you're, and how am I going to deal with it? And what you're saying is, you know, give me your hardest, most unsolvable problems and I'm going to give you a process for them. Yes, that's absolutely right. That's and great. That's, yes, absolutely. Okay, so I, I, I want to just sort of jump right in. And let's jump right in with a couple of definitions, and because I think they're important. And then let's talk about the process and let's play with some conflicts. So the first definition is what's an optimal outcome? I think that's important. Yeah. So an optimal outcome is really made of two things. One is what is your imagined ideal future? This is pie in the sky, using your imagination, not just your thinking brain, because the thing is, typically, it's the thinking brain that has gotten us into trouble in the first place, or has just not gotten us what we wanted. We have often come up with option after option after option, rational thinking. We've offered those options to other people. They haven't wanted to go along with those options. So this optimal outcome is saying, put aside those rational options and put aside the rational thinking brain for a moment and put on your imagination. So what would the future, the ideal future look like? What will it smell like? What will it feel like? What will it taste like? Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech is a great example of this. So, so number one, you know, where he says like, I imagine a future where there's a lot of imagery in that uh, Mm -hmm. speech. So if people want to take up take a few minutes just to go to the middle of that speech and listen, Um, holding hands, ringing bells of freedom, lots of imagery that helps us imagine what that future is that he wants for us. So part one of an optimal outcome is what do you imagine for the future? So often we're kind of distracted by blaming other people and what went wrong in the past and we need to look at the future. But the second piece of an optimal outcome is taking into account the reality 
of the situation that you're facing. So often we get stuck in that pie in the sky scenario that we have made for ourselves in our minds. And yet we're stuck fantasizing about those because they don't match reality. So an optimal outcome is one that takes into account both that pie in the sky imagined future and also the reality of the people we're dealing with, the reality of the constraints of the situation we're facing. Um, and that can mean coming to terms with some really hard truths about who other people are, where they come from, what their backgrounds are, what they want out of life. It can be very, very difficult for us to acknowledge those things. And yet only once we're able to really acknowledge those, can we come to what our optimal outcome is and free ourselves from conflict instead of staying stuck. That's great. And I, and, and you mentioned these sort of these two elements of it, which is like what's going on for the people and what's going on in the situation. Can we add a third, which is what's going on for the system? Because I think of Martin Luther King, like operating in, within a systemic societal mm -hmm. kind of constraint at that time, trying to break through that. And that seems like it's an important piece to yeah. throw in there. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, in the book, I talk about a third, uh, a third um, piece of what we need to acknowledge. And so maybe there are really four, because you've named now one third, um, which is acknowledge the reality of who we, we ourselves are. Mm -hmm. right? So typically, we wish three things would be different, either that the structural institution or society would be different than it is. That's what we wish. Mm -hmm. We wish the situation would just go away. Um, we wish other, and so, you know, that's the first piece. The second thing we wish is that other people would be different from how they are. Mm -hmm. And if that person could just blah, 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 right. Right? this would all just poof, be gone. Right. That's what we wish. And then we also often wish that we ourselves were different. God, if I wasn't so competitive or if I wasn't so blah, blah, blah whatever it is, then this, w we wouldn't be in this situation. So we wish that these three things were different. And what I'm asking us to do is acknowledge, wow, what am I wishing here? And turn it around. Can I accept and acknowledge? Not accept in the sense of accept and now I'm resigned and cynical about the situation, but rather, you know, you could be sure Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he, he accepted, he acknowledged what was the reality that he was facing right. in the 1960s. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's let it stop him. Right. I love that. I love that. And I think it's so actually rare. You know, when I think about the work that I do around leadership and, and working with people, one of the principles is to go into this work with a desire to be changed. Mm. Right? Like I'm going in with a desire to be changed. And and it's like it's so rare because mostly, you know, like when's the last time you were in a political conversation with someone and you weren't looking to change their perspective. You were looking for your perspective to be changed. Like never, right? right? Like right. we don't get into arguments hoping that the arguments will change us. We don't get into conflict hoping the conflict will change us. But it's this really, you know, beautiful, challenging mindset to say, I'm going to go into this situation. Maybe I'll be changed. Maybe I won't. But with a real openness and even desire to be changed from the interaction. Right. That's absolutely right. And the idea is, look, there are a couple of things I could say about that. One is it takes courage to go into a situation saying, look, I'm not here in order to change anyone else's point of view. I'm not here to try to make them be different because I recognize that I've been trying to do that and it hasn't worked for me. Right. So that takes a lot of courage, just that alone, 
to acknowledge that's not my purpose here. The second thing it takes courage to do is to be vulnerable and, and, and say, look, I am going to take it upon myself to grow. So that's, you know, that's another thing also is that what you're suggesting is what if we orient to our lives as the point here is to grow. And if the only way that I could grow here is to do something different myself, then, you know, then I'm going to have to build those courage muscles and figure out what it's going to take. Right. Great. So you, you, you structure the book and talk a lot of uh, its premises around this conflict loop in many ways, right? That mm-hmm. in the 1970s, Dr. Morton Deutsch, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Yep. Um, and he sort of says, which is a profound discovery around the nature of conflict, which is self-perpetuating, right? That when a conflict begins, it's likely to lead to more, lead to more conflict. And so the goal of this is to get ourselves, in effect, to free ourselves from this conflict loop. You you talk about conflicts as having no end, you know, unlike legal negotiations. Can you explain a little bit about that and tell us anything else that we need to know about the nature of the conflict loop before we go in? And I think we should just do like a super quick, shallow dive in terms of the process and then play with it a little. Gosh, you just asked a bunch of different things. I did. So. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so... The thing about the conflict loop is that it's self-perpetuating. And what perpetuates it? It's our own conflict habits that get uh, caught in a pattern of interaction with other people's conflict habits. So I talk about four different conflict habits. You can identify your primary conflict habit either by reading the book or you can go online to optimaloutcomesbook.com slash assessment and you can actually take a quiz. It takes like seven minutes to complete and you can take the quiz online to find out what's your conflict habit that you primarily fall back on. And our conflict habits get get caught in a pattern with other people's conflict habits, and they keep us stuck on this conflict loop. So we could actually kind of stand back and watch this pattern go around and around and around. And that is what I ask people to do is stop and notice what is the pattern that I am stuck in here? Am I... Am I blaming and attacking other people? And then are they blaming and attacking me back? That's one very common conflict loop Mm -hmm. that people get stuck in or pattern that people get stuck in. Another one might be I'm blaming and attacking them and they're shutting down and they're avoiding me. They're running away. They're hiding. And that also is we get stuck. So we get stuck in these conflict loops. And the point is not to try to take that conflict loop and tie it up in a bow and say, now we've resolved the conflict loop. Because the nature of conflict, as Mort Deutsch and many, many people over the last 40 years of conflict research have shown, conflict inevitably, it, it, the nature of the beast is that it will lead to more conflict. So if that's true, the challenge is how do we get ourselves off that conflict loop? We might even still be kind of watching it go around and, and around by itself, but we're not in it anymore. And the beauty of that is when we free ourselves from the conflict loop, we inevitably, there's no way not to also free other people from the conflict loop because there's no more energy there. If, if I'm not staying stuck on the conflict loop, you're free as well. Yeah, and it's interesting when I think about the, because when I think about relationship work that I do, whether it's relationship work actually even with couples or in, with partners or organizationally, what you're saying resonates with what I know about relationship work, which is that people have their control patterns, right? And it's, mm-hmm. it's usually aggressive control patterns or passive control patterns. So, you know, a, you might have 
two people who are avoidant and, and they're both passive and they're not going to have the conversation. You might have two people who have aggressive control patterns and they're just going to blame each other and fight and it's going to get really big. Or you might have, you know, passive aggressive where they're, you know, one person blames and as you described, the other person shuts down or, or you know, so, so it's, it's, um, this is, this, this work is so deep in terms of, not just particular conflicts, but how we even relate to each other. Yeah. And, and those are the things that end up leading to the conflicts. Right. I think one of the counterintuitive of the conflict of the four conflict habits, one mm -hmm. that tends to, to be counterintuitive for people, is the one that I call relentlessly collaborative. Because in our culture, for Collaborative is supposed now, to be great. Right, right. I mean, you can type in collaborative to YouTube and you'll get like 10 billion videos on how, of to, how to be, right? Exactly. And we, many of us now learn from an extremely young age that we need to be collaborative in order to get along in society. Our classrooms are set up to encourage that. Our workplaces are now all, you know, so many open space workplaces encouraging collaboration. And then the issue is when it becomes a habit and we only use that muscle when we're in conflict situations, we can actually get ourselves stuck in conflict by trying to collaborate when that's not appropriate. And the way we know it's not appropriate is because guess what? Because it's not working. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and it's, and not working actually can take a few different forms. There's an organization that I work with, a financial services firm. I, I don't know your client list. So I don't know if you may work with them also, but it's, but I, I've taught them negotiation, conflict resolution. And one of the one at very senior levels of the organization. And one of the tools that I use is the Thomas Kilman conflict mode instrument. Yeah. And when, when, and it, it has these different, you know, sort of f five different modes of engaging in conflict, each of which is incredibly useful depending upon the situation that you're in. And this organization that's super high functioning, but a little slow moving, absolutely prejudices towards collaboration. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, it's not even that it that they're stuck in it forever. It's just that a decision that should take two minutes might take two days because they want to make sure that they have the buy-in from everybody. And one of the takeaways is collaboration is great and we have to know when not to use it. And by the way, we have to then be okay not being in every loop. Because it could create conflict to then say, well, we didn't collaborate and now I wasn't in the loop and nobody involved me in this decision. And even though I don't agree with the, even though I agree with the decision, I feel left out and I'm going to like, and that's, so in some ways, you know, it's resolving conflicts themselves may, may initiate another conflict because of the way that we end up resolving it. Yes. And that does sound like a relatively functional use of collaboration. Yeah. There must be some mechanism that's happening there where people are able to eventually get to a decision in a sh relatively short period of time of two days. I've, as you can imagine, consulted to a number of organizations where that's not the case. Right. They're collaborating as that's their main habit as an organization, and they don't get to a decision in two days, and right. they don't get to a decision in two weeks, right. and they often don't get to it in two months or even two years. It right. just goes on and on and on and on, and these decisions don't get made, and it's frustrating the hell out of people. And so when that is happening, I'd say if you're getting to a decision in two days and you're simply frustrated, all right, this optimal outcomes method could help you. Right. But it's really when it's going on and on and you're stuck is when to look and say, hey, we as a team or we as an organization tend to habitually collaborate 
what else could we do instead? And that's what the rest of the practices in this method are all about, is about helping people identify what else you can do. Great. How do you break the pattern that you're stuck in. If we're stuck in a collaborate, collaborate, relentlessly collaborate, collaborate pattern, then what else could we do instead? Right. Let's stop being so nice to each other. Okay. <laughs> So, so let's go through, could you give us like a super quick, superficial dive into the eight practices or the, the, the flow so that then we'll just to give people an understanding of it and then let's use it as an example. Yeah. So the first few practices are all about taking a step back, notice where you are and how you've gotten stuck. So we've talked a little bit about the first piece, which is notice what habits, what, what habits are contributing to a pattern that's keeping you stuck. Then we also ask you to look at what are the emotions that are involved, what's driving you emotionally, what's driving other people emotionally, and then some advice about how to help settle your emotions. And if they can't be settled because you're so um, intensely experiencing your emotions, what to do in, in that case and how to listen to the messages that your emotions are sending you. So emotions. Um, then we take a little a dive into what are the values that are driving the conflict, mm -hmm. both ideal values that we're proud to say we hold and also what I call our shadow values, those values, the things that we really care about in life but would never admit to anyone, including not even to our own selves, that we care about in life that are driving our behavior and because we're not admitting them uh, are impossible to discuss that uh, really wreak havoc on conflict. So we look at emotions and values and then once we have a handle on the situation of what, what's driving it, um, we move into the second part of the book, which is all about how to free ourselves from whatever it is that we're noticing we've been stuck in. So a piece of that is imagining our ideal future, using the imagination brain and not just the rational brain. A piece of that is about thinking ahead and um, predicting what might be the unintended consequences of our own actions or inactions that might cause conflict without our realizing it and, and taking steps to both prevent and mitigate those. Um, and then finally, analyzing what is our optimal outcome so that we don't stay stuck in fantasy land like we were talking about before, but rather get a real sense of what are the costs I'm paying for staying stuck? What might be the cost that I'm going to pay if I go with my, um, what I perceive to be my ideal future optimal outcome and what might be costs I would pay if I would walk away and then asking people to use those courage muscles to make a conscious choice about where you'd like to start heading. You know, it occurs to me as I listen to that, that even just thinking about the conflict in this way, like even before you go into the specifics of playing it out in a particular situation, just thinking about it changes how you enter into the conflict, like just yeah. kind of getting the flow of it. You know, you might just say, I'm, uh, there's nothing I'm going to do here. Like, it's not going to, like, I'm wasting all of my time. You know, like, it's not worth being in this conflict. And, and you know, I'm going to, uh, you know, this term batten a best alternative to a negotiated agreement. It's like, What's my best alternative to like, I could avoid the person I could like, that might be the right. best shot you have. Right. So, so it it's, it may not, I mean, there may be other opportunities, right. but even just thinking about it yeah. can remove you from the loop in some ways. Yes. The thing about BATNA that I am so excited to be having conversations with people about with this book is that my experience teaching the concept of BATNA now for the last 25 years is that 
We often fantasize about our BATNA when we would never walk to it because it's so costly. Right. Right. So, um, you know, I have a client who was telling me about her BATNA as if this were something that she could actually do. And because she was really in a stuck place with her boss, she was on the senior team of a high growth, high potential uh, team in an organization that was, you know, doing extremely well, but she could not figure out how to get along with the CEO, her boss. And so she starts telling me when we're in a coaching call about this other organization that she could go work for. So we're, you know, she's telling me about it a few minutes in and I say, so sounds really great. You know, go do it. Right. Go do it. (laughs) What are you waiting for? And she says, oh, well, I've already talked to him that, you know, the CEO of that company about it. We've talked about it many times over many years and it's never going to (laughs) happen. For X, Y, Z reason. Right. And I am sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, what is she talking about? It's not an alternative. It might be best, but it's not an alternative. Exactly. It's not. And yet the thing that is so fascinating to me about what we do, the human brain does, is that we will not let it go. And why don't we let it go? Possibly because there's some some joy, kind of some... um, soothing feeling that we get from just daydreaming about that possibility, even though we know it's not a real possibility, right? not something we would actually go do, but it calms us down in our high anxiety moments of dealing with the cost that we're currently paying in our current situation. It's an intellectual game to comfort ourselves. Exactly. So the thing that I would like to help if there's anybody, if there's one person listening to this conversation that you and I are having now, who I can help not do that and right. recognize I'm in the fantasy land. I'm going to let it rest. I'm not, that's never going to happen because right. there's too many costs associated with doing that and bring myself back to where I am today. Even though I may be feeling so much pain about where I am today that I just want to jump out of my skin because I don't want to be here. Right. Let's deal with that. Right. Rather than soothing ourselves with these things that will never, ever happen. And we see this, by the way, in the international sphere. You know, you can see entire countries of people um, acting in these ways of thinking, you know, this thing that we think might happen one day. Like, let's hold out. And and it's just like, look at it and say, this is never going to happen. Okay, so let's let's use this now. Let me I'm going to throw out an example of uh, of a client organization. Uh, I'm not going to name the name. And and you can you can uh, coach me. Right. And 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 that, you know, like one of the rules is, you know, to really map out a conflict is you have to be directly impacted by the conflict, not just an observer. In this case, I'm an observer. But we'll sort of try to work the situation and I'll, I'll share with you whatever I know and we can kind of see where it, you know, like how to approach it. Well, are you impacted because this is a, this is a client of yours. So yeah. you're impacted to the, the extent that you need to figure out a way to be helpful to them. Yeah, exactly. So in that way I am impacted. That counts. Right. That counts. Right. Okay, great. So let's think of it as a startup company, founder and investor, right. Or maybe even group of investors. Yeah. And and the founder is brilliant, developed the technology, like, you know, like he's super strong in that way, but, you know, not a great leader of the organization from the investor's perspectives in a number of different ways. And 
there's, you know, there's just been a tremendous amount of conflict around that. Maybe start to ask me questions so I know how to narrow this sure. down in a way that might be helpful. Sure. Well, what what is the conflict about? What are the people? Um, one thing, because I, I imagine it may be complex conflict. Yeah. So let's just say that the conflict is about, because there's so many different things that conflict is about, so I should just choose one. And by the way, while you're thinking, I will say, this is an integral part of freeing yourself from conflict, is identifying what are the various complex conflicts, multiple conflicts that are at play in one situation, right? right? There may be, if I, if I had to guess, I would say, look, given how, you know, that you're thinking about it for even just a few seconds, there may be a conflict going on between one of the main investors and the leader. Right. There may be a conflict, there may be multiple conflicts going on between the leader and the people who work on right. the leader's staff inside of the organization, right? Right. There may be multiple conflicts that each group, each one of those kind of dyads or groups that I just named are dealing with right. issues wise, right? There may be five issues that they're dealing with internally, and there may right. be three issues you're dealing with, with the investor. Right. Okay. That's great. And that's a great example. That out. That's a great example because that, that is all over the place. So yeah. let me, let me uh, define it in, in one very particular way. I can think of two conflicts that could be very useful. One is a very basic fundamental conflict, which is which I see in startups, by the way, all the time, mm -hmm. which is what the investors would like is for this founder to focus on the technology piece and do what the founder does best and stop trying to be CEO of the organization at the same time. Mm -hmm. And the founder would like to be both CEO and you know, founder and head technologist person. Mm -hmm. And as a result, creates a lot of problems in Discord. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, and so the And that plays out, by the way, because then this, the CEO wants to make certain investments from a business perspective that the investors think are not the right investments. Mm -hmm. But the investors sort of don't feel like they can push too hard because if they do, they're worried that they'll lose the founder and then lose their investment. Got it. Right. So you just answered my next question, which is, well, why not just say thank you very much to the founder? Right. See you later. It's because this founder brings so much to the table. You cannot lose the founder right. without being many, many costs. And by the way, in my view, I question that a little bit, whether that's true or whether mm -hmm. that's just the fear of mm -hmm. the investors. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's actually extremely unlikely that the founder would walk. Mm -hmm. I just think it's extremely unlikely, yeah. but the investors are scared enough right. that they're not willing to push it. Yeah. Great. So one thing just to point out what we've just started to do we haven't been physically writing this down, but I would encourage you as someone trying to be helpful in this situation to map it out. Right. Write down what we just talked about. Here's these investors and even name the investors individually. So you might have one circle on your map, right? Mm -hmm. So I think about a map. And by the way, I forgot to kind of highlight that this is the, one of the main first pieces of the method before, which is to map out the conflict right. because it helps you notice things, right. levers for change that might not have been apparent other, right. otherwise without doing this. Right. So if I were going to map Because I'm talking about the investors 
but yeah. there's actually a number of different investors. There's a number of different venture capital firms. There's a, so there's like, there's lots of different players in here yeah. um, and they're different, which yeah. is totally true. Exactly. Right? And right. I'm a, I would venture to guess, no pun intended, <laughs> that, um, that some of those venture capital investors have more formal power and more informal power than others, which right. is probably at play, probably right. influencing the message that is then being sent to the CEO himself or herself. Um, and so just even if we just mapped out, what are the relationships between the investors alone could be a helpful. Right. Answer. And so then there's conflicts there because some, some are more aggressive about the need for change and others are not. And so there's like, you know, so that might be more subtle conflict, but they are not just mm -hmm. a single body. Exactly. Right. I love how you just use the word subtle conflict because it is often the subtle conflict that's at play, right? So when we talk about, we could now think about what are shadow values, right? What are the things that people on that investor team care about and are unwilling to admit that they care about mm -hmm. that right. might be driving their opinions or their behaviors? And in, also, I think it, along with care about, I wonder if it's also fair to say afraid of. Like, yes. what do they care about and what are they afraid of? Which I guess yeah. is just an element of what they care about. Yeah. It's an element of what it's the, it's the negative. It's right. what they care the, about in the negative, right? right. They're concerned right. about X. Right. And then the question is, well, why are they concerned about that? Right. So, you know, it, it just you know, one way for you to possibly make headway here in possibly a different way than you have so far and I will. I, I hope it's okay that I say before we jumped on the call, you and I were just chatting, and mm -hmm. you mentioned to me that you were thinking um, about the situation that it might be very difficult to have this conversation with the CEO directly because you've already tried that a number of times and it hasn't helped. Right. 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 So, one thing to do when you realize that's happened is to is to focus not on the relationship between the investors and the CEO, but on the relationships amongst the investors themselves. So to ask each other, and again, we don't need to ask ourselves out loud, or we don't need to ask other people out loud, what's your shadow value, right? Because like, that's ridiculous. They don't and know explain, uh, yeah, explain a shadow value, because people listening won't yeah. necessarily know what a shadow yeah. value is. So a shadow value is something that you care about that you're not able or willing to admit to yourself that you care about. It comes from this Jungian psychology idea that we all have parts of ourselves that we're proud to reveal to the rest of the world and then parts of ourselves that we're really not proud of and we push those down and we pretend they don't exist. And the, the problem is other people can see them, they ooze out of us. Right. So for example, I might be proud to tell you that a value that I have is that I care about adventure or I care about spirituality, or I care about leadership. And those are things I'm proud to say I value in life and that I will align my behavior with those if I can. Things I might not be proud to tell you that I care about are being competitive, being right, having status, having recognition, like that. Right. Financial security, right? Those can tend to be things that are hard for people to admit. Now, not for everybody. Right. And kind of the fascinating thing about ideal and shadow values are that um, different people can have, you know, one person can have a shadow value that is someone else's ideal value and vice versa, right? right? Somebody Some might want status and what, right. right. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So that has to do a lot with culture and upbringing and, and, yes. uh, you know, what's interesting too, is when you say that one of the things that, that, that even that language opens up is to say, you know, because we can look at it and go, oh, 
I want um, uh, I want financial security, and then characterize ourselves at, or someone else as greedy, and then that becomes all of who they are, as opposed to say, no, there's a tremendous amount of complexity to our values and to the values of other people, and yeah. and so like it's it's about holding and being able to hold the the sort of basket of values that um, that someone holds and realize that they're complex human beings. Right. So on that, coming back to your example, on that team of investors, mm-hmm. or group of investors, it may seem to some of the investors like other people, other investors are driven by fear. Right. right. Like they just don't get it. Why are they so resistant to the idea that this CEO may not be the right one and that he, they're so worried he's going to walk? So one potentially raw, honest, maybe difficult conversation that could be had had among those investors is what are you, you know, are, do you, are you concerned about that? Sometimes it's also a matter of just using the uh, different kind of language. So instead of saying to someone, are you afraid he's going to walk away saying, what's, what, what are you concerned about? Are, you know, if he were to walk away, what do you think would happen then? Or playing That's that great. Out. Language is so important because are you afraid of people are going to react to, but what are yeah. your concerns? People feel like, well, I have legitimate concerns. Right. right. I'm not afraid. I'm just, exactly. I have some concerns. Exactly. <laughs> have you had that conversation yet on that investment? You know, it's interesting. So I, I have, um, I, 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 I think I probably characterize it as fear because I have some judgment around it. Mm-hmm. So that's very helpful for me to hear because I sort of think, you know, I probably framed it. And, and the answer was, we are afraid of that. But still, like, I think I could have been more skilled in how, how I approached it. And, and I, but what I, but I haven't, I, I've, I've thought of this as a conflict between investors and, and, and CEO. Mm-hmm. I haven't thought of it as conflict of the investors and and how interesting it is yeah. to get the investors to think together yes. about like yeah. how do how do we want to approach this in a way where there's real unity of of approach especially in a place where you know change has been tried and it's not likely to happen Exactly. Um, on the CEO side. Exactly. Given right. what you've described, it is hard for me to imagine a unified VC group not making quick, easy, decisive change with that CEO. Right. Right? Right. Much harder to imagine. Right. That's great. So, like, what we've – this is great. So, what we've done is, like, I, I, I – you've sort of using this process have shifted – what I thought the problem was, what I thought the problem was, you know, and, and there's an optimal outcome. There might be an optimal outcome for the conflict, but there's like a, a um, stepwise optimal outcome. So the yeah. first optimal outcome is get some agreement among the investors, mm-hmm. right? Because that's the first step. And yeah. then, then it's like, you know, what's your optimal outcome there? And then what's your, yeah. you know, what's the optimal outcome, you know, to the whole situation is like yeah. how to, in, in my sense, the optimal outcome would be how to keep the CEO in the role that is best suited for him mm-hmm. and support the growth of the company by, uh, by complementing his, you know, sort of technology skills with leadership skills that he's not likely to have. Right. So that may or may not turn out to be what the ultimate outcome is. Right. And you use the word stepwise. That's great. 
I talk about it as designing a pattern breaking path. And the reason I talk about it as a path is exactly because of what you're talking about. Right. That typically when we're stuck in a complex conflict, there's not one thing that needs to happen in order to free ourselves from that situation. There's multiple steps on a path that need to be trod. You know, we need to trod on that path. We need to right. walk that path. And sometimes it can be very difficult to know what that ultimate um, outcome is going to be, but we can at least see what's the next and the next and the next. And I often, I really encourage people to see the first step as doing these practices or at least one of them, right? Pick off one of the practices. So we, you and I just took off two, which was mapping it out and thinking about what shadow values might be, what other people's shadow values might be on one part of that map. Mm -hmm. So start with yourself and then move outwards from there. So you're starting with yourself here on this call today, and then maybe your next step will be to go to one person on that VC investor team, offer the insight that you just got, and then from there build, okay, then we're gonna talk to more people on that VC team, and then we're gonna you know, see if we can get some unity on the VC team, and then we bring it to other people inside of the organization itself. Right, right, that's great. We have been speaking with Jen Goldman Wetzler, uh, fantastic conversation, Jen. Her book is Optimal Outcomes, Free Yourself from Conflict at Work, at Home, and in Life. It's a really great book that is both sort of theoretical and conceptually interesting and as well incredibly practical. And as you saw, you know, in this podcast and this conversation, like very, very applicable in a stepwise way, uh, which is super useful. So, Jen, it's such a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Peter. Really, really appreciate the time. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.